0: Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Ophea, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we are beginning a study on a new book and we pray that um, not just this message but this whole series would be for your glory, that we would speak truth, that we would dig into your truth and that we would better understand who you are by examining what you've said to us in your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see the words on the printed page that we might faithfully um, worship you, that we might faithfully be obedient to you that we might faithfully uh, attend to you. God, we come this morning with with many cares on our hearts. We come this morning with many distractions on our minds. And we pray that um, by your spirit, we could set those things aside. That our hearts would be full of joy and reverence. Help us to focus on eternal things and not temporary things. Permanent things and not fleeting things. Give us a perspective on our trials and our difficulties that we might serve you well this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Who are you? Maybe uh, you're Curtis or you're Lauren who aren't here this morning. Maybe your Becca or you're Steve. Um, but your name isn't all that you are. There, there are a lot of people who share your name. I'm Chris. Or I'm Christopher. Now, I'm Christopher L. Schwab. But I know of at least one other Christopher L. Schwab out there that I found on the Internet. So, okay, I'm, I'm Christopher Lawrence Schwab. I haven't found another one of those yet. There might be one. I'm not sure. But, but even that, that doesn't really say who I am, or who you are, does it? So, when we go on social media sites, we get these nice little about me sections uh, called different things, you know, in different sites, and where we try to give some little pithy insight into who we are. So I did some research this week on you. Um, For instance, Brian. Uh, Brian thinks... If you want to know about Brian, he thinks it would be helpful for you to know, quote, is there someone else up there we can talk to? No, now go away, or I shall taunt you a second time. That's, that's Brian. It, it doesn't really answer about you, and yet, in a way, that tells you a lot about Brian. Um, uh, Candace, Candace uh, adds, I live in CLE. That is all I got. And then proceeds to say a whole lot more, which is, that's Candace. I mean, that's... Um, <laughs> Uh, Joseph writes, just graduated from OSU, that might be a little outdated now, with my bachelor's in music education. I love music and think it's a gift that we should, should be shared with every fellow human being on earth. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the support and encouragement of all my family and friends, but most of all, from God. There's a lot, but I think that, that sums up Joseph. You know Joseph, he's passionate about music, and he, and he loves his family, and he loves God. Uh, uh, ben. Uh, I saw Ben earlier, I don't know where he's hiding, but... Oh, he's in the back, okay. Ben, ben says, uh, I just got married to my best friend. <laughs> I, I think he means he's so in love with Aubrey that it's almost like it's just begun. Um, and I have an awesome God, I'm a hypocrite, and I like to ride bicycles. And uh, if you know Ben, I think, yeah, he's, he is a man of God uh, who is uh, very uh, consciously aware that he is a fallen person... He definitely loves to ride his bike. Um, I was actually surprised, though, how many of you didn't fill out this section on social media. And I suspected that number will substantially drop in about 45 minutes. Uh, Put your phones away, please. Uh, But we do this because my name alone doesn't really tell you who I am. I am more than a name. I'm a personality. I'm a set of experiences, And I want to sum sum this up for you. I want you to know me, however imperfectly. We're beginning a series on the the book of Philemon this morning. and, And it's a short series, three sermons. And normally I'd spend the first message setting up a lot of context for the book. But this is such a short book, we'll let the context unfold a bit as we go. But there are a few things that are worth saying, at least by way of summary. It's a personal letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written to a man named Philemon, who lives in or near a city called Colossae, which was a city in central, what we would call Turkey today. Uh, Philemon was apparently a very dear friend of Paul's, and the primary reason for writing the letter uh, concerns a slave that belonged to Philemon named Onesimus. And it would seem like Onesimus had run away. And as providence would have it, Onesimus runs into Paul. And he becomes a Christian. And so Onesimus is also mentioned one other place. He's mentioned in the book of Colossians. And that's a letter that Paul wrote generally to the church in Colossae. And the most likely reconstruction of the background then is that Paul wrote this letter. Philemon, at the same time he writes the letter to the Colossians generally... And he sends those letters back with Onesimus and some others, uh, sends them back to Colossae to carry the letter, but also for Onesimus to return to his master. And that, of course, opens the doors to all sorts of questions, and and it touches on uh, a range of theological issues, some of which we will undoubtedly leave untouched or underdeveloped in this series, but we will deal with some heavy stuff. But this letter begins much like all of Paul's letters does. He begins with a greeting, and he begins with a prayer. And most of us are probably likely to just kind of jump over those sections, you know, get me to the meat. But in these sections, Paul is always setting up the meal. He is deftly and carefully constructing a framework Uh, So that the meat can be consumed well. It's like a really good wine and cheese pairing before the steak. You know, if if you do it right, the steak will taste better if it's properly prepared for. And and the greeting in this letter is, is the first three verses. And they particularly speak to the idea of identity. More than all, or at least more than most of his letters, Paul is intent to point to an identity deeper than merely a person's name. And by doing so, he demonstrates that a Christian's identity is radically shaped by Jesus. He points us to four identities which we'll look at in turn. Prisoner, brother, worker, soldier. And so let's dig in with that. The, the first identity we have here is prisoner. Paul begins by identifying himself the author of the letter. In, in a typical Greek Greco-Roman letter uh, a person put their name, their author's name first, who it's from, and then that's followed by who it's addressed to. And he puts Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Some of your translations might say prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul does not identify himself here as an apostle or as a servant of Christ, which are the identities he typically uses when he's writing a letter. And that's interesting because he he makes a big request in this letter, which we're going to get to in, in the coming weeks. But he doesn't pull rank by using that apostle title in order to make this big request. Instead, he reminds Philemon of something that Philemon probably already knows. Paul is currently in prison. We know of at least three imprisonments by Paul. Um, He was imprisoned in Ephesus for a time. We know very little about that one. Uh, He was imprisoned in Caesarea, uh, near the eastern coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. And he was there before he was sent to Rome, and then he spent a couple years in Rome as a prisoner. Uh, He may have been released before being imprisoned in Rome a second time. A lot of ink has been spilt trying to discern which imprisonment this was, but while most think it's Rome, it it, it doesn't really matter. We can't be 100% sure. The point is that Paul is currently in prison. And we see that he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And by saying that, he's not telling us who has imprisoned him as much as he's saying why he has been imprisoned. Later, down in verse 13, he refers to it again. He speaks of the fetters or the bonds of the gospel. And it's clear that Paul is saying and emphasizing that he is in jail because of his preaching of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't say this to draw sympathy, I don't think. At least that's not his primary motivation. Um, elsewhere, we know that Paul can express great contentment with his imprisonment. It certainly never stopped him from preaching the gospel. Rather, the, uh, the Roman proconsuls, uh, Marcus Antonius Felix and uh, Porcius Festus, the Jewish king, Herod Agrippa II, the sailors and prisoners aboard his ship to Rome when he was being transferred between Caesarea and Rome, and even Caesar's imperial guard. All of these individuals heard the good news about Jesus because of Paul's imprisonment. He certainly preferred freedom because it gave him greater freedom to preach the gospel as he saw fit, but the chains themselves were never a hindrance to Paul. At the same time, and not to over spiritualize it, but it wouldn't be unfair to think that Paul saw himself as a prisoner of Jesus in another sense. In Colossians 1, remember he's writing Colossians at the same time, he writes, For in all things, or excuse me, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul would certainly agree with the modern hymn when we sing, and and actually we we will after the sermon, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. So I don't think that Paul would at all dismiss the idea that both his current disposition and the cause of his disposition are centered on Jesus. That is, Jesus as the sovereign king of history was in an important way the one who put him in prison. Both his current disposition that he is a prisoner and the cause of him becoming a prisoner, I think for Paul, are both centered on Jesus. And that's a perspective I think that is significantly lacking in the church today and, and in this church, perhaps. Do you recognize that your current disposition and the cause of your disposition is centered on Jesus Christ, that you are where you are because of Jesus, and you are where you are for Jesus. That's a radically different perspective than most of the world has. But do you see how, as if you if you cling to that truth, it will it will reshape your attitudes, it'll reshape your priorities, it'll reshape your actions. I think it's likely true that all of the great works for Christ in history were done by men and women who shared that kind of attitude. Because following Jesus will lead us into dark places. How do we brave being burned alive in the Colosseum like Polycarp? unless we recognize Jesus tied me to this stake and I'm on this stake for his glory. How do we stare down the spears of the Huaranis on the beaches of Ecuador with Nate Saint and Jim Elliot unless we grab tightly to the fact that Jesus has placed me before this spear and the spear is for his glory? How do we face the hangman's noose in Nazi Germany with Dietrich Bonhoeffer Unless we say, Jesus, you have brought me to the noose and I will hang there for your glory. And how will we face the stake, the spear, the noose, if we can't see Jesus' hand and Jesus' glory amidst the most mundane trials of our everyday life? A bad boss, a bad relationship. An illness, an infirmity that won't leave us, a harrowing family crisis, a financial trial. And these things aren't nothing. We're not trying to dismiss them or diminish them. But if we can't acknowledge Jesus' hand and live for his glory amidst things like that, we will not, as Paul, evangelize the nations, let alone our neighbors. But Paul was a prisoner of Jesus. The second identity he gives is brother or, or sister. I'm, I'm lumping two together here. We'll look at Timothy and Affia. Timothy is described as a brother and Affia as a sister. They're very different characters. We know very little about Affia. It's been speculated that this was Philemon's wife, which is a reasonable hypothesis, but we just don't know. Timothy, on the other hand, we know a great deal about... ...as he is one of Paul's closest and most trusted gospel co-workers... ...accompanying him on missionary journeys across the Roman Empire. Eventually, he became the pastor at Ephesus. Aphia has a very Phrygian name. Phrygia was the region of central Turkey... ...in which were located cities like Colossae and Laodicea. So it makes sense that she's there. She's She's very culturally Phrygian, most likely... The Phrygians worshipped the mountain mother, Sibele. They also venerated Sabazios. We know a little bit about Timothy's progeny. His mother and grandmother were Jews, apparently faithful ones who became Christians in time. His father, however, was a Gentile of Greek culture. So Timothy was, in modern terms, biracial. He apparently hailed from Lystra in Laconia, a province east of Phrygia. At least that's where he first meets Paul. And you may recall that in Lystra, it was where people tried to worship Paul and Barnabas, thinking they were Zeus and Hermes, respectively. And then later, they go on to stone Paul and drag him out of the city when they thought he was dead. He got better. Different cultures, different heritages, different ethnicities, different families, and yet here they are Timothy, a brother. Anaphia, sister. We don't use this terminology as much as we used to, but that is maybe a shame. Uh, the ancient Israelites would sometimes refer to each other with familial designations, brothers, sisters. But then they were, almost all of them, descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so using brother or sister was eminently appropriate. But Timothy and Anaphia, only in the broadest earthly sense, I guess they're descended from Noah. I mean, they're descended from Adam. Could they be considered brother and sister? But Paul provides us the background for why this term was so appropriate for the new Christian community. In Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, Paul teaches the idea that when we come to faith in Christ by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, we are adopted into the family of God. Jesus, too, teaches us to pray our Father, knowing that his disciples are children. If we are all children of an eternal God, then we are also eternal brothers and sisters. Most of us who have siblings likely, probably, have warm relationships with them. Not all. I know these things don't always work out that way, but it's common enough that it's a cultural expectation to some degree, um, Those of us who don't have good relationships with our siblings generally feel like we wish we did, wish we could figure out how to cultivate it, wish things were different, because it's still the expectation. And, And we generally, outside of some extreme situations, I think have a feeling that we owe a certain sense of loyalty and consideration for our siblings over against a random person on the street. All the more so, I think Paul would argue, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are, as we have said, siblings we will spend eternity with. And regardless of what they seem like now, regardless of what you are like now, we share a perfect perfect heavenly Father who is molding us into the image of of his perfect son, Jesus. He loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. And if we're adopted into a family like that, how much more loyalty and consideration, how much more warmth and care should we have for our spiritual family? extra blessed are those whose biological families are also part of their spiritual family, but no follower of Christ will ever ...be short of family. But this can't merely be a category we use. It needs to be a lived reality. It's, it's not enough to simply say... ...that's my brother in Christ... ...or that's my sister in Christ... ...unless we're willing to live that out... ...as an objective reality. So in writing to this same Timothy... ...who he calls a brother here... ...he writes Timothy a letter elsewhere in the New Testament, and Paul urges him to treat all the young women as sisters and all the young men as brothers. So we must consciously, intentionally be caring for one another with warmth, with hospitality, with genuine affection. We look out for one another. We rejoice in each other's happinesses. We, we mourn with each other's pain. That's what true siblings do, or at least what we We hope they do. And and I suspect it's just those sort of qualities that Paul saw in Timothy and in Apphia. And certainly the type of manner that Paul tried to live and have with them. Life can be hard, but with people around us who treat us like true brothers and true sisters, it is decidedly more manageable and bearable. How are your relationships with your fellow Christians? The third identity that Paul uses here is beloved fellow worker. And and this is a trick because it's really two identities in one here. But to render it literally would be kind of awkward in English. Something like our beloved and fellow worker. But Paul says that Philemon is both our beloved and our fellow worker, and I'll touch on beloved just briefly uh, because I think it overlaps with the idea of brother or sister quite a bit. But it's interesting that this word exists in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I believe only, I could be wrong, but I think it's only there uh, describing the relationship between God the Father and God the Son in those instances where God calls down from heaven and says about Jesus, this is my beloved Son. But outside of that, it, it, it always appears from one Christian, usually Paul or Peter or John, to another Christian or a group of Christians. It's a term of deep and profound affection. It squares with everything we've said about brother and sister, and, but perhaps maybe even a little bit more intimate. I've noticed that Paul always seems to use the term beloved with people he knows personally. And so even though he uses it three times in the letter to Colossians uh, of a people he'd not visited personally, he only uses it there in relationship to four specific people that he does know personally, even though he he doesn't know the church as a whole, but he knows four specific people there that he can call Beloved. We do not know how Paul knows Philemon, but his affection for Philemon is very deep. And if you you do a quick look at how often Paul uses this word, because he does use it quite a bit, it reminds us that Paul was quite liberal with his affections, and maybe that's worth emulating. But I want to spend more time on this term fellow worker that is used for Philemon. Because this is, likewise, a, particular, a particularly favorite term for Paul. He uses it of a number of close associates. Priscilla, Aquila, Urbanus, Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus, Clement, Mark, Justice. And then later in this letter, he's going to use it again of Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Its basic meaning is precisely what it sounds like. It's someone who labors alongside another person. It can be translated helper at times, but for Paul, it seems to imply that they are in the same line of work, so to speak. Paul's line of work, of course, was the gospel. So while Paul uses this word a number of times, it's clear he doesn't use it quite as liberally as beloved. So what sets these men, and in one case woman, apart, in the case of Priscilla, what sets them apart as fellow workers? Well, clearly Paul saw that these individuals and a number of others as so engaged in the gospel work that even if they weren't with him, even if they weren't by his side, he could speak of them as tightly engaged in work for the evangelization of the world. Which leads us then to a good question. If, if we had lived in Colossae or Ephesus or Corinth or Berea, in Macedonia, not in Ohio, during, during the days of Paul, would he have described us as fellow workers? There's little evidence. It's possible, but there's no evidence that, say, Philemon or Urbanus or Aristarchus or Damas ever traveled with Paul from place to place in preaching the gospel. How, then, were they his co-laborers? Perhaps because they were deeply engaged in the gospel work wherever they were. Perhaps they were plowing and seeding different fields of the same farmer, our Lord Jesus. On the other hand, perhaps they were working in other ways. John Piper has famously remarked, I'll paraphrase him here, that of missions, you've got really only three options. You can go, you can send, or you can be disobedient. Those are really the three options that are open to a Christian. You can go into the mission field, you can send into the mission field, or you can simply disobey the commandment to be part of making disciples of all nations. I suspect that Philemon was a sender. And I think Philemon was a sender because as a slave owner, which we will get to in this series, and a homeowner... He was obviously a man of some means, and not only did he have means, but a person you know a person typically doesn't travel the first century world with scarce and inconsistent income while retaining a home and a slave in a distant city. That would be unusual. So he's probably very stable. He's probably very much situated in colosse or nearby. And, and perhaps in his comparative wealth. He helped to fund Christian missionary efforts. He certainly was willing to use his home to house the young Christian community nearby. Whatever the case, his involvement in the gospel work was sufficient enough for Paul to count him among some very rare company. He was a fellow worker of Paul's, fellow worker in the great effort to make Jesus' name known among the nations. Are we? Are you? What would need to change in your life to be a fellow worker? This is a relatively young crowd. And let me say this. If you feel, even a little bit, a burning for missions, listen to it. Heed it. Explore it. Pray over that. Get wise counsel. And start making adjustments in your life now. Because it's easy now. You're young, most of you. And I'm not saying to go now, but I am saying that the choices you make at your age now, and I... I'd like to pretend I'm not that old now. I'm going to be 40 this year, but I can already see the difference. The choices that you make at your age now will set you up for being able to make that move when God says now, or it will set you up to make it very difficult to make that move. And so if you think there is a pull on your heart to missions or or some other full-time ministry, the decisions you make now are weighty and they are important. But even if not, even if you don't feel that pull, know that the decisions you make now can alter your ability to engage in that gospel work as a sender. How much of your free income can you spare for the cause of the gospel? How much of your free time can you spare to encourage missionaries? Decisions you make this week could have a dramatic impact on the answer to that question next year or in 20 years' time. So my encouragement, my challenge is to be a people who make decisions on the basis of gospel fruitfulness so that we could be known as fellow workers. The fourth identity is a fellow soldier. Uh, We know very little about Archippus. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul tells the church there to make sure that Archippus completes his ministry, whatever that means. We don't know what that ministry was, but it was something that Paul felt he needed the encouragement of the church and the accountability of the church to accomplish. And then here he's referred to as a fellow soldier. A much later Christian writing outside of the Bible mentions that he was a bishop in Laodicea. But whether that's reliable or not, it's it's difficult to know. So we we know very little about this man. Unlike the other identities given, Paul doesn't hand this one out much. In fact, he only calls uh, two people a fellow soldier. Uh, The other one is Epaphroditus. And then he encourages Timothy to be a soldier generally. But if we look at how Paul uses military language a picture emerges of what he thinks about Archippus here in Philemon 2. For Paul, his Christian ministry was akin to waging a spiritual warfare against the false and idolatrous ideas that would seek to supplant Christ. This was an external battle, but it was also an internal battle. He encourages Timothy to wage the good warfare, By which he meant stand firm in the faith. Don't lose sight of it. Our faith is is being assailed by spiritual forces. And we must valiantly contend to hold on to it. It's a reminder that staying a Christian is an active fight. It's not a passive fight. Passive assumption of your following of Christ is an excellent path to abandon Christ. we need to be active in contending for our own faith. In his second letter to Timothy, though, Paul begins another analogy. He encourages Timothy to be a good soldier. And what makes for a good soldier? Well, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Short, little blurb, but it says a lot. First, note that there's an understanding that suffering is a part of the expectation of the soldier. Uh, coincidentally, I, I watched a, a TED Ed video a couple weeks ago about the life of a Roman soldier. You can look it up; it's pretty cool. Um, it's a cartoon; it's animated, so it's not a guy on the stage just talking at you for thirty minutes. And, and while soldiers in America today enlist for four years, during the first century, a Roman soldier enlisted for 25 years. Grueling marches on foot with heavy armor and gear, horrific close combat warfare in all sorts of weather conditions. The life of a soldier could be extraordinarily hard. But soldiers don't live for themselves. In the video, they describe a man with a woman that he's interested in waiting for him back home but 25 years ahead of him. That's a long time to wait for a marriage. But a soldier does not get engaged in civilian pursuits. His cares for the cares of the army, the cares of the Roman Empire, the cares of Caesar. Love and poetry, dining and distractions, these things would have to wait. Rather, they did what they could to please the one who enlisted them. The military had and has a chain of command. They could move up the ranks, and your standing was as good as those over you were pleased with you. Similarly for the Christian, then, there is a call to abandon the temporary fleeting cares of this world. How much more is that needed today when distractions and idols sit only a swipe or a tap away on our smartphones. We're concerned about news, we're concerned about relationships and benefits packages and sports and video games and weddings and television dramas and everything in between. And look, the the Christian call is not a call to asceticism. It's not a call to abandon everything in this world and and, and live as hermits uh, with you know, camel's hair and honey and locusts. We're not all to be John the Baptist, but I do think it is a call to live with a sort of holy detachment so that the frivolous ups and downs of this world can't easily scar us. Instead, like good soldiers, we endure rough and rugged conditions, knowing that suffering may be for a moment, but eternal joy waits for us at the dawning of our Savior's face. And it's that Savior, Jesus, who has recruited us and enlisted us into his makeshift army, soldiers, every one of us, and and it's to him that we owe allegiance. His smile is our pleasure. As Paul wrote this letter, Rome was in the midst of a campaign to take Britain. Most of Britain, except for Scotland, eventually fell to Rome to the glory of Caesar. But we fight a better battle. Our battles, it's not fought with the swinging of the sword and the thrusting of the spear, but the proclaimed word of God. The good news of a God who saves sinners by dying for them. And our battle is not fought by the conquering of territory, but for the conquering of hearts. And we do not subject people to our authority, but by grace And through the Spirit, we subject our own flesh so that it no longer does the bidding of sin, but does the bidding of righteousness. And we don't pursue victory for the glory of Caesar, but for the glory of an eternal king, King Jesus, to whom Caesar and every other claimant to the throne will bow. So when Paul says to Archippus that he is a fellow soldier, we see a pretty subtle and yet powerful picture emerge of a man who has a single-minded devotion to the cause of Jesus Christ through whatever conditions might come upon him. Are we fellow Soldiers. So, who are you? What is your identity? What makes you you? What is your epithet? What will be written about you when you're gone? What will define your life? Prisoner, brother, sister, fellow worker, fellow soldier. These are four identities that are radically shaped by their connection. To Jesus Christ is your identity radically shaped by your connection to Jesus Christ let's pray Father uh we have to confess, certainly, I have to confess. That too often we stray from the mission. We stray from the call. And we wander off the sides of the narrow path that you have called us to. Distracted by the shining lights and the little bells and whistles of this world. Forgive us that we lose sight of you. But God, make us a people. Make us a people who are content with the condition we find ourselves in, knowing that it is by you and for you that we are there. God, may we be true, brothers and sisters, looking out for our own, for those who are in Christ, the church of our Savior, that we might not let each other down. May we be fellow laborers, passionately engaged in going with the Gospel or sending others with the Gospel. Father, may we be soldiers, obedient, dutiful, undistracted, enduring for the sake of our King. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship.